grab your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We are continuing along in our series. We're going through the book of Daniel, verse by verse. Well, we're not doing the whole book today, LOL, funny. Daniel chapter 5 today. And what I would like to say as you're finding Daniel chapter 5 is this. I think you know this, but I'll say it anyway. We're not going through the book of Daniel just because, oh, I don't know, it's Sunday morning and you have to talk about something and, you know, there's a couple nice flowery stories in there. So we'll just like do Daniel just as a placeholder. It doesn't really mean much. We'll, we'll just like read this old book that, you know, isn't that relevant to today and pat ourselves on the head because we heard a nice story and then we'll go back out into the real world after and back to real life. That's not, that's not at all what's happening here. I just encourage you, the book of Daniel, this is, this is God's word. This is God speaking. And it is as relevant now as it was the day it was written 2,500 years ago. This is not detached from real life at all. This is literally super applicable and relevant, not just for what we see in the past, but for our lives today. And it's a story about what happens in the future as well. This is unfolding. This is real life. God's word is real life. You with me so far? Good. So that's just my encouragement to you in this. Daniel chapter 5, I want to start just by reading the first four verses, and then we'll start to unpack. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. That happened in chapter 1, right? Nebuchadnezzar and his army showed up in Jerusalem. They sacked the temple, took a whole bunch of stuff, important things, objects of worship, out of the temple, brought it to Babylon. He said, bring those in. They brought in, uh, sorry, that uh, the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. The king, his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So I think it's probably pretty clear what's happening in those first few verses. But let's just take a little bit of the scenic route to get there. First thing is Belshazzar. Somebody say Belshazzar. It says King Belshazzar. So this is a departure from what we've seen in the first four chapters of Daniel. We've been talking a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been the king of Babylon, but now we have fast forwarded several years and there's a new king. Actually, there have been a few kings since Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's Belshazzar. Uh, the events of uh, Daniel 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 uh, took place in the early 600s AD. This here account in Daniel 5 took place in 539 BC. So this is like 65 years later. Daniel was a teenager at the start of the book. Now he's an older man, and we're going to hear from him in a little bit, probably in his 80s. But Belshazzar reigned from 580 BC to 539 BC. One of the early hallmarks of his reign is that when he was, well, he wasn't even reigning yet, actually. When he was in his mid-20s, he was part, a central part of a military coup, uh, an overthrow, a mutiny of the government. And his father ended up becoming the king, and he ended up being the crown prince, the sort of next regent in Babylon. Uh, then a couple of years later, his father, the king, no one's quite sure why he did this or what happened, but he took off. He said, I'm out of here. Went into a self-imposed exile in a faraway place. So that leaves Belshazzar, a fairly young man in his 20s, 
in Babylon, and now he's the king, or he's pretty much the king. He's got all the powers, almost, of the king. And he never actually was fully-fledged the king, but he reigned from 553 to 539 B.C. And not too much is said about him, though there's some, uh, there's some documentation in history outside the Bible that talks about his reign and, and some of the stuff that he did. Mostly what we get from him in Daniel chapter 5 is that he threw a big, drunken, raging party. That's what he did, right? You're smart people. You can see that's what's happening here. He made a great feast. And look at every verse that's on the screen there talks about he drank the wine. They brought in this thing so they could drink the wine. Verse 3, they drank the wine. Verse 4, they drank the wine. It's almost like God wants us to notice what they were doing, right? Now, during this drunken party, they get a bit, well, they start getting hammered. And then they get a bit belligerent and cocky, and they start acting like idiots, is what they do. And this is following, is not the main point of Daniel chapter 5. However, since we're driving by, I'll just say it while we're here at the bus stop, probably as a Christian, any story that you might want to tell that begins with, I was at this drunken, raging party, probably like doesn't make you look very good. Probably not a good story to tell, okay? Probably not something we need to be super proud of. I digress. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Quit digressing. The main point of the first four verses in Daniel 5 is that there is a disregard for God happening. A disregard. Not caring about God. And it happens at a couple of different levels. For one, Belshazzar and everybody else, there's no mention of God for them at all. It doesn't say anything like Belshazzar sought the Lord, worshipped the Lord, pursued the Lord, humbled himself before the Lord, gave a rip about the Lord. doesn't say that at all. It's almost giving the impression Belshazzar is king. He's living his life. He's just fine without God in his life. That's sort of a passive disregard for God. However, they also have an active disregard for God. This is when the drunkenness comes up and the belligerent sin and, and the sensuality, probably likely a sexual element to this as well. That's why it says a couple of times about his wives and his concubines being there. Like that means like his wives and his girlfriends. That's a mess, just saying. They're all there, likely a sexual element. Uh, they are then start desecrating objects of worship of God. Now, we as Christians don't really have a lot of stock in physical objects to be used in worship. However, in ancient Israel, they were really important. These were furnishings in the temple where, where God's presence dwelt on the earth. These were things uh, specifically set and instructed by God. You use this vessel for this purpose. You use this vessel for this kind of offering. You use this kind of vessel to drink out of. It's all very holy. It's all part of worship. This was very much an attack on the Israelite worship. But these guys don't care. The Babylonians are just letting her rip. And then to put the cherry on top, they start literally praising and worshiping other gods, idols of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. This is just a, a massive disregard for God, through and through. They don't care about God, and they're totally fine being completely against God and acting in a horrible, sinful way. And let it be known, because this, again, is not just a story about what used to happen. Daniel is a story of what's still happening, we are capable, human beings are capable today of disregarding God to the very same degree. Maybe that looks different for you. Maybe it's not a drunken party and the wives and the girlfriends are there. That's a mess, like I say. However, we can go through life disregarding God passively, just saying, you know what, I'm fine without God. Or maybe we don't even say that. Maybe we just don't even think of God ever. 
we're just totally fine without him. That's a disregard for God. Or maybe we go through life with a blatant disregard for God. Some people, they literally are very passionate about how, you know, God doesn't exist and I'm an atheist and Christians are morons and all this stuff. Or maybe it's just you're totally fine being in flagrant sin. You're, you're totally off the deep end, but you don't even care. That's a disregard for God. And our disregard for God puts us offside with God, makes us enemies of God, the Bible says. It's like this. I don't know how many of you are sports people, but depending on what sport you like, th this imagery will track. If you're on a baseball team and you stand up to the plate, you're facing this way, and the whole team, the other team, is facing you. If you're a football player, you're lined up, the ball's about to be snapped. There's four or three or however many 300-pound people standing in front of you ready to tackle you, staring you in the face. They're on the other side of the ball as you. When you line up in the hockey rink for the face-off, you're facing this way, the other team facing you. They're on the other side of the ball, and that's what our sin and our disregard for God does for us. We're here living our lives, and God is looking this way at us. And we say, I'm on the wrong team. That's what's happening here. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous, not even one. None of us on our own are right with God. We're offside, on the other side of the ball from God, and we are enemies of God. However, let it just be known, you don't have to be an enemy of God. If you're leaning on your own understanding and your own wisdom and your own righteousness, I'll tell you, you're an enemy of God. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and been born again and repented of your sin, you're an enemy of God. You say, well, I'm a good person. That's offensive to me. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. There are no good people. There's varying degrees of bad people, but there's no good people. Only God is good. You're not good enough. Gift of encouragement right here, right? Just saying. But it's true, it's true, it's true. No one is righteous, not even one. However, even though we're all sinners and our sin separates us from God and puts us offside with God and it results in death, physical and spiritual death and condemnation and wrath, hell is a real place, just saying, even though that is the status that we all occupy and the destiny that we all ought to receive, God so loved the world. God loved you enough to send Jesus, his son. God himself stepped off his throne, entered into human history, lived a perfect sinless life, which we have failed to live. Only Jesus ever who walked the earth was the only one who ever measured up to the standard of God because he is God. He died on the cross like we talked about earlier. He suffered and died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Jesus died. But since he had no sin of his own, the grave could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave victoriously. He's alive. He has defeated death. That would be a good place to cheer people for Jesus now. He is alive and well right now. He's ruling and reigning, sitting on a throne. And what he's doing is he's inviting each of us. He's making an offer to each of us to be saved, 
to be set free, to be forgiven. Yes, none of us measure up on our own, but because of the death of Jesus, the one who does measure up, his righteousness can cover us and we can be declared righteous. But what you need to do is you need to die to yourself. You need to admit and confess, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. You need to repent, turn from your sin and start walking in newness of life. The Bible calls that being born again. And when you're born again, you become a child of God. You're adopted into the family of God. You receive the spirit of God and you receive the promise of eternal life with God. And that doesn't just affect the next life. That starts to affect this life in the here and now. That's called being a follower of Jesus. Anybody know what I'm talking about today? Yes. So that's the offer right there. God has made this offer to you. You don't have to stay on the other side of the ball as God. You don't have to be offside with God. The ball is in our court. But make no mistake, friends. There really are only two kinds of people. There's people that are for God, and there's people that are against God. You slice it up any way you want, that's what it boils down to. If you are someone who is a believer in Jesus and you've called on the name of the Lord and you've trusted in him for your salvation and you've been born again and repented of your sin and everything we just talked about, if you're a believer in Jesus, you would be classified as someone who is for God, right? You're wearing the right color sweater now. You've got the right jersey on and that's good news. But the only other option is being against God no matter how good or righteous or religious or whatever you think you are. If you're not for, Jesus literally said, anyone who is not for me is what? Against me. You fall into one of those two camps this morning. And what we're going to see in the rest of our text, which I'm going to read the rest of it now, we're going to do a little bit of a case study on people who are against God and people who are for God. It's going to be fun because we're having fun in church today. We already established that, right? Mm-hmm. So... Let's read the rest of the text just to get the story here. Verse 5. So the drunken rager is going on. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. It got him pretty good. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. I laugh. These guys have made an appearance in every chapter of Daniel so far, and they have helped exactly this much. They're useless, okay? That's because they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit, but false spirits. But that's another story for another day. Now, he declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing on the wall and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But shockingly, they... Oh, that actually isn't in there. Never mind. It should be. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. Shockingly, they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. He wasn't alarmed enough before, and his color changed again. I don't know what color he is now, but he's a mess. And his lords were perplexed. It says the queen, some of your notes in your Bible might say the queen mother. This likely wasn't his wife, the queen. Perhaps uh, his mother, mother-in-law, grand, doesn't necessarily matter. But someone that had been around a while, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. And yes, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, it's very confusing, so we're going to just keep calling him Daniel, as the scripture does here. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in to, before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. He's like, thanks for telling me. I didn't remember that. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in to read this writing, to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, chain of gold around your neck, and be the third ruler in the kingdom. I love this answer. Look at this. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's, was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. <clears throat> his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, his mind was made like that of a beast. We read that last week in chapter 4. His dwelling was made with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, maybe your notes say you, his successor, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored him. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing. It said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Perez, that's the singular of Parson that we read a second ago. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple, the chain of gold around his neck. Proclamation made that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, lots there. What I want to do, I want to give you five warnings for people who are against God. Right? We've already established the definition of that. Someone who is not for God, not been saved, not regarding him, walking in sin, enemy of God, wrong side of the ball from God. Here's five warnings to people that fall into that camp like Belshazzar. That's exactly where he is. Here's the first warning. If you're someone who's against God, God is trying to get your attention. 
He's trying to get your attention. You can see from the text that we read that God has already been trying to get Belshazzar's attention. It says in verse 22, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. The this being, you knew everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor. You, you know exactly how he went mad and was driven from society because he did not humble his heart before God. And only when he figured out that God reigns and rules, that's when he was restored. You knew all of this. It's what history is there for, in part. How many of you guys liked history in school? How many of you did not like history in school? So-so, some of you are in the middle. You're the lukewarm crowd, okay. Another sermon for another day. One of the things I love about history is that it's there for us to see so we don't have to make the same mistakes that were made in the past. We have this benefit of being alive now and all these years of history are behind us and before us have come before us. We're not the first people that have ever lived. People have lived and made some really dumb mistakes for thousands of years. And we should be able to look at what they've done and go, oh, I don't want to be dumb and make dumb mistakes. I don't want to have the same consequences of that action, so I'm going to act differently than that person did. We have that benefit because we have the history before us. But a lot of times we don't learn from it. We don't take our cues from it. We say, no, nah, this is a modern age, an advanced society. I can't learn anything from what happened back then. That's foolish. Foolish. Belshazzar should have known better. Because it's written. It's written down for him to see. He should have known. Oh, I need to make sure I'm right with God. I can't be going around and acting like a fool. But that didn't sink into his heart. We ought to know better as well. There's this thing called general revelation, for one. This is how God reveals himself to all people in all places at all times. For instance, it says in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, you should be able to look out, even if you've had nothing to do with God or faith or the church, you should be able to look out and go, oh, this world that's all around me. It must have gotten here somehow. Maybe a God created all of this. I know I didn't create all this. That should be enough to get our attention. But, and there are also people that, this is their story. They say, oh yeah, I grew up in the church. Right? We've all heard this. Grew up in the church. Went till I was 16 or 18 or 14 or however old enough I was to rebel against my parents. And I said, I'm not going anymore. And I walked away from it. And yeah, I mean, I've got all the stories and whatever, but I just don't, that's not part of my life now. We ought to know better. We can't fall into that trap. God has already been trying to get his attention, Belshazzar's, and then he really turns the heat up. This is where the fingers of the human hand start writing on the wall. This is a supernatural appearance of God. The hand of God, the finger of God starts writing on the wall. And Belshazzar sees it. And his color changes to some ghastly shade of whatever he changed to. This, in verse 5, this rocks Belshazzar. This stops him in his tracks. He can't ignore this anymore. He can't explain it away. He's got to grapple and wrestle with this. God will do similar things in your life. God is not afraid to turn the heat up in your life if you're not paying attention. 
And God will use things like your circumstances to try to get your attention. Maybe it's a job loss suddenly. Maybe it's financial troubles. Maybe it's a health scare. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a midlife crisis. Maybe it's even thinking about death. Someone that you're close to just got a terminal illness diagnosis and that makes you go, whoa. Or maybe it's your own impending death you start thinking about. God is trying to use these things to tell you to wake up. You need to pay attention. And you need to know, this speaks to God's heart in a big way. Because, right, if we're against God, we're enemies of God, we, we say that we want nothing to do with God, it could be so easy for God to say, hey, fine, great, see you later, right? I, I, like, thinking with your relationships with other people, if someone that I wanted to have a relationship with that badly wanted not to have a relationship with me even more badly, right? They're just set against me. And despite all my efforts to try to get close to them and, and befriend them, they just say, no, no, no. Eventually, I'm gonna get discouraged and I'm gonna say, okay, fine. If they don't wanna be friends, fine. I get it, I'm out. That's not what God does. We ought to give him great thanks for that today because God, even though we're against him, he loves us enough to try to get our attention where he could just as easily not bother. Even when we want nothing to do with God, he wants something to do with us. In fact, friend, he has a life for you. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know he has a life for you. He wants to set you free from your sin and your futility of the ways that you're living. He wants to transform you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to, to make you a new person and fill you with his spirit and make you a child of God eternity bound. God, God wants to do this in your life. He loves you enough to do that. Isn't that awesome? God's trying to get your attention if you're against God. Next thing is this. If you are someone who is categorically against God, you cannot be self-sufficient forever. That's number two. You cannot be self-sufficient forever. There's this delusion that exists in life. A lot of people say, I got this. I'm good. I don't need any help from anybody. I'm just going to lean into my own understanding and my resources and my cleverness and my job title and my income and whatever, and I got this. No help required. Well, that's foolish, actually, because look at Belshazzar. He would be a guy, out of anybody, he'd be a guy that might almost be able to make that boast. He's the king. He's rich. He's powerful. He's influential. He's got the best of the best resources at his disposal. And even he ends up in a situation where he needs help. Where he realizes, I got a big problem and I don't know how to fix it. And the longer we go through life under the delusion of we can just solve all our own problems, listen, we're deceived big time. You might be able to solve your earthly problems for a while. You know, I got a bad knee. I went to the chiropractor. He fixed my knee. Okay, great. Right? I was short on money. I got a new job. Now I'm making more money. Great. Right? I, I had this conflict with this person, but, but we talked it out. We smoothed it over. Now we're going to... Great. But I'm telling you, you are eventually going to end up in a scenario in your life that's bigger than you and bigger than your ability to fix. If nothing else... I'll just be straight with you. It'll be when your time comes to die. Our greatest need, our greatest enemy is death. And our greatest need is to be saved 
so we can divert from that crash, that course that we're all on. All of us have sinned. The wages of sin is death. That's what we're all facing on our own. God wants to do something in your life to fix that problem, right? If you died, to, I'm not trying to be morbid, just being real, because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, right? If you died today, apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, one day you will stand before God and you will be judged according to what you've done on earth. And guess what you did on earth? You sinned and you fell short of the glory of God. And that is enough to result in death, condemnation, wrath. And you deserve it because they're the things that you did. And no one, you know, it's funny. In this day and age, people are like spending lots of money to try to gain immortality, right? If I just like engineer up some, some I don't know, potion or something, I'll, I'll drink this and I'll be able to live forever. It's not gonna happen. Death comes for us all. And you need help if you're gonna be confident in what's gonna happen to you after your death. As, as Christians, we should have complete confidence in what's gonna happen to us. You belong to Jesus? Huh, this will sound weird. The day that you die is actually going to be the best day of your life because you're gonna go and be with Jesus right then. Yes. So we don't have to worry because God has helped us. God has saved us. He has clothed us in his righteousness. Our names as Christians are written in the book of life. We're good. However, if you're against God, none of those things are true for you. And if you are going to be okay, yes, in this life, but especially in the next one, man, you, you cannot remain self-sufficient because it's not enough. Not good enough. The third thing, this kind of is hand in hand with number two. If you're against God, what you need is to humble yourself. Humble yourself. You know the old saying about humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Like now I gotta go around making fun of myself, I guess. No, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not about you. You are not the center of the universe, right? You're just not. You're certainly not God. Hello. We've gotta come to a place where we're humbling ourselves and bringing ourselves down a peg. That's literally part of the salvation process. But you look right here. Daniel gets brought in before the king. I want you to just think about this. Here's Belshazzar, <clears throat> king of Babylon. He conquered Daniel's territory in Israel. Daniel was brought to Babylon essentially as a slave and a servant. Belshazzar here, what he's being asked to do is humble himself and go to the person who is a subject under him, a slave under him, and say, can you please help me? This is unheard of. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Pride can't lead you there. However, we're going to see Belshazzar, though he looks like he's maybe on the right track here, we're going to see that he doesn't actually follow through on this and end up in a good way. But we need to humble ourselves. We need to at least, you know, he begins with this thing of, I need help. I have a problem. And Daniel, I've heard that you can help me. Th there's something there for us. If you're against God, there's something there for you. Because, again, you are not right with God and you cannot save yourself. Y you cannot bring yourself to righteousness and right standing with God. You need help and you need to humble yourself in that. Like I said, that's literally part of the salvation process. Part of what God wants to do in your life 
is save you and forgive you, as we've said all along today. And an essential ingredient of that is you coming down a peg. It's saying, I am not God. Though I have tried to sit on the throne in my life, I am not God. You are God. And I have sinned against you. And I'm sorry. And I want to change. But I can't change myself. I want to be saved, but I can't save myself. I want you, please, to forgive me of my sins. Here they are. I confess them to you. This is a posture of humility. This is literally every person who becomes a Christian. This is part of the, this is an ingredient in the process. You cannot be right with God until you realize that you have a problem. And friend, actually that you are the problem. You cannot live the life that God has for you if you're trying to sit on the throne of your life. Doesn't work. You cannot be full of the Holy Spirit if you're full of yourself. Doesn't work. Need to humble yourself. So if you're against God and you want your tide to turn and your situation to change, again, it's not about you got to puff yourself up and, and, and be prideful and try harder and prove yourself. It's about humbling yourself and surrendering to Jesus. That's what you need. You need to acknowledge, I'm part of the, the problem, and Jesus, you are the solution, and I'm coming under your authority. Humility. That's what it is, and that's what you need if you're not a believer in Jesus. The fourth thing is this. We turn the heat up a little bit here. If you're against God, what the Bible would say that you're doing is that you're storing up wrath for yourself. I'm just going to tell you the way it is, Okay. If you go through your life and you carry on and you do nothing with this information we're, we're examining here, you just go through your life, I'm fine. Look, nothing bad's gonna happen to me. I'm doing great. Don't worry about me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. Romans 2.25 says that if that's the way you're living, what you are doing is you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Remember I said, one day you're gonna stand before God and the book is gonna be open before him. Everything you ever did. Right? It's like... If you're not a Christian and you just keep walking in sin, walking in sin, what you're doing is you're adding more gunpowder to the keg. That's what you're doing. Belshazzar, that's what he's doing. In verse 23, it says, he's lifted himself up against the Lord. He, he's just prideful against him. Obviously, he's walking in sin like the drunken party. God, you have not honored. So his problem at first is that He's not right with God, and he disregards God to begin with, but then Belshazzar keeps making it worse. The party the drunkenness, the sensuality, the sexuality, the desecrating the objects of worship, bad to worse. You owe a debt to God, your sin. You owe it to Him. And if you're not a Christian, that debt has not been paid for you. You have an outstanding balance on your account. And all you're doing, the longer you don't walk with God, you're just adding more charges to that account. I wrestled with whether to tell the following story. I think I will. There was a guy that used to come to our church. He's passed away a few years ago. Some of you would not remember him. Some of you will remember him. His name was Tim. And Tim, though at times he was a hard guy to love, we loved the guy. And though he wouldn't admit it, he loved us too. Tim, bless his heart, he had many challenges in life. Um, and he, he had a hard life and he had certain intellectual disabilities and and that's fine. But one thing uh, that Tim did, he got into a period of his life uh, as an adult, like late 40s, where he got cable at his apartment. And without anyone knowing, so of course he has a bill to pay, a balance that he owes, he started going, oh, there's a movie on TV. I want to watch that. Well, it's pay-per-view. 
Look, the wrestling match is on. Pay-per-view. And after a few months of this, uh, he had a bill that was in the thousands of dollars. Yeah. By the way, he would love it that I'm telling you this story, just saying he would love it. If you knew Tim, he would love it. And they looked on his account, and yet, all these movies, he might have only watched 10 minutes of one of the movies, but here's the cable company saying, this guy owes us a bunch of money. He already owed us money, and then he kept making it worse. That's what you're doing with your sin. If you're not a Christian, you're making it worse. Adding on. If you're a Christian, though, if you've been saved in Jesus Christ, everything has already been paid for for you. Right? Your, ba- your balance sheet has been stamped with the green stamp, paid. You're good all taken care of. But if you're not a Christian, nothing has yet been paid for. And you are on the hook to pay for it. And one day you will pay for it when you stand before God and you're sentenced and condemned. I said it already. Hell is a real place. And the fifth one is this, hand in hand with that one. If you're against God, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you will face judgment if you don't repent. Right? This life that you're living now, apart from God, it will catch up to you one day. It's not, it might, it maybe will, it certainly will. Belshazzar, he's given chance after chance after chance to repent, and he doesn't repent. And even after Daniel does this amazing thing, and he interprets this writing on the wall, you would think, now Belshazzar is going to get it. Well, if you read in verse 29 in your text, Belshazzar doesn't respond in any kind of a way to do with God. His response to Daniel doing this amazing thing, he goes, yep, he, he just put Daniel in the third ruler of the kingdom and gave him the robe and gave him the, the, the gold chain and he doesn't respond in faith at all. And then literally the next verse, Belshazzar was killed. But look at, the, look at this judgment. Look at this judgment here. The writing that was on the wall, by the way, I learned this week, this is where the expression, the writing is on the wall, this is where it originated. It's from the Bible. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. That expression, the writing is on the wall, that means if something doesn't change and change fast, the outcome is inevitable. This here is a prophecy of the judgment of Belshazzar. He did the mene, mene, tekel, parson. Verse 25, mene. That sounds like the Aramaic word for numbered. It says, your days have been numbered. And they're coming to an end, Belshazzar. Verse 27, the word tekel sounds like the Aramaic word for weighed, like it's been weighed on a scale. And it says, you've been weighed and found wanting, Belshazzar. You're not measuring up. The word parson in verse 28 sounds like the Aramaic word for divided and the Aramaic word for Persia. Your kingdom is going to be divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians, God says. And that is exactly what happens. Belshazzar still doesn't repent. And that night, he was killed. Two things on that. Number one, again, if you don't repent, it's going to catch up to you. And you probably don't know when it's going to be coming. Right? The Bible says if you knew when the the thief was going to come in and and steal and destroy, you take provisions to make sure he couldn't get in your house. But that's the point. You don't know when it's coming. But it's going to come for you. And the second thing I want to point out here quickly is this. This is another reminder... We've talked about this a lot in Daniel, of how God is over all kings and kingdoms of the earth. Here's King Belshazzar, king of the greatest empire in the world at the time. God says, you're done. And God said, before it happened, your your kingdom's gonna be given into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Guess what happened? It was given into the hand of the Medes and the Persians. God rose somebody else up, a different kingdom up. Here it is again, all through Daniel. God is in charge. 
But here's the point of this. And then we'll move on to the slightly more encouraging stuff. If you're not a Christian, look, I'm not here to judge whatever you're doing and whatever your life has been like, but I'm here to warn you, you need to take this seriously. God is not messing around. Don't put this off. You need to be made right with God or it's not going to end well for you. And God is inviting you and making the offer to you today. And if you want that in your life, come and talk to me later. We'll have some of the elders up here at the front. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. But the ball is in your court on that one for sure. We all encouraged yet? Okay. Let's flip the script on this one. I want to end with five encouragements for people who are for God, like Daniel is, right? If you're a Christian, you categorically belong in the category of you're for God. Hello? He's speaking. Anyway, here's the first one right here. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are wearing the Jesus jersey, you're on the right team, here's encouragement number one. People will not understand you, but they will know that there's something about you. This happens all throughout Daniel chapter five. Look at verse 11, right? They're talking about Daniel. The queen bursts in. She says, there's a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. It's like, well, that actually isn't quite what's happening. Daniel has the spirit of God. So she's not quite right, but she knows there's something about this guy. This guy, Daniel, has wisdom like the wisdom of the gods in him. Actually, it's wisdom from the true God. Nebuchadnezzar made him chief of the magicians. Daniel was not a magician. He was a spirit-filled believer. She doesn't quite understand, but she knows there's something about him. It, it says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar named Daniel Belteshazzar. No, 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 no. That's not his name. That's not his identity. His name is Daniel. He is a child of God. Let him, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Well, actually, God is going to help you through Daniel. They don't quite understand, but clearly, 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 they know there's something about this guy, Daniel. They have no idea what it is, but they're drawn to him. And that can happen to us as well. If you're someone who is for God, you're a believer in Jesus, you belong to him, you are close to him, you have a relationship with him, you're walking with him, you're pursuing him, you're involving the Lord in every area of your life. We do it imperfectly, but when that's our goal and that's our pursuit, you're someone that very likely will be filled with the Spirit of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, people are going to be drawn to you. Some people are. Some people are going to hate you, just saying. But some people are going to say, man, there's something about that person. I need to know more about what it is, even though I can't put my finger on it. And all of a sudden, when you're full of the Spirit and people start coming to you and asking you what's your deal, now you have an opportunity to witness that you didn't even go looking for, which is cool. They've come to you and you get to say, well, here's my deal. Let me tell you about Jesus. People will not understand you, but if you're full of the Spirit, people will be drawn to you. Some people will be drawn to you. The second encouragement is this. If you are for God, you will certainly be tempted by the trappings of the world, but you can overcome them. You will certainly be tempted, but you can overcome them. So Daniel is now in before King Belshazzar. Belshazzar says, if you can interpret this writing on the wall, you'll be clothed in purple, you'll have the chain of gold, you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Wow, that's pretty good, actually. See, this is what the world does. This is what the spirit of Babylon does. It will promise you everything 
if you buddy up to its systems and, you know, just compromise and just forget about God a little bit and come join my team, the world will promise you everything. And that doesn't mean that it's like wrong to get promoted or something in your job. Obviously, that's good. If you work hard and you get promoted, praise the Lord. But this is saying that the spirit of Babylon can use worldly treasures to try to lure us away. Remember, we've said the whole point of the spirit of Babylon is to change your allegiance from Jesus to something, anything else. And there are people who start out on track and, wow, Lord, yes, here I am. I want to be saved. This is the parable of the sower, right? Some seed got planted and it was sprouting and bearing fruit, but all of a sudden it got choked out by the cares of the world and it proved unfruitful. This is what Satan is trying to do in some of your lives, distract you with material things, worldly things or status or things like that. And that is going to throw you off the path. That is going to take you out of the life that God wants you to live. These are people that are obsessed with work, people obsessed with money, obsessed with pleasure and success and and material things, popularity, worldly things. God has better for you than that, friend. And the, the issue is not having any of those things. It's when you worship those things. Put them first above everything else. But the alternative here. The pushback here, and we see it in Daniel, he fights against the spirit of Babylon, this temptation, by having a greater treasure. Matthew 6 talks about that, storing up your treasures in heaven. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that we ought to not set our hope on riches, but on God. And this is exactly what Daniel does. The response he gives shows his heart through and through. He says to Belshazzar, Let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. That's not what I'm working for. That's not who I serve. You can see it clearly. His portion and his prize in life clearly is not in the things of the world. In fact, we already established a few weeks ago in chapter one, it says Daniel resolved that he was gonna follow the Lord. In other words, Jesus is his treasure. And only when Jesus is your treasure can you fight off against this other stuff. Can you fight off the spirit of Babylon that wants to put something above Jesus? Daniel's an example of that. You can fight the temptation to drift and coast and get let off. Got to have a greater treasure. The third thing is this. If you are for God, if you're a believer in Jesus, don't stop serving others. Don't stop serving others. You can see, so Daniel answers Belshazzar and he says, hey, I don't want your gifts I don't want them. Give them to someone else. You really get the impression reading that he doesn't care too greatly for Belshazzar. But look what he says. Nevertheless, I will. Read the interpretation to the king. I will help you. I will serve you. I will love you. I will honor you. In this case, this is someone who's in authority over Daniel. Again, remember, Daniel's not happy to be in Babylon. He's been brought there. The whole eunuch thing happened to him. Not really preferable. And I don't think he likes Belshazzar very much, but he still says, you know what? I'm going to serve and honor you. You don't have to like, we talked about this last week, you don't have to like the people in authority over you, your boss or the government or whoever, but you have to love them. It's hard sometimes. Daniel doesn't like it but he submits and he serves same thing with the authorities in your life and i meant to mention this last week because we talked about the government for instance a little bit 
we do this until they lead us to sin, right? We're going to see this next week. Until those in authority over us instruct us straight up to do something sinful. We don't follow them into that. And we might not agree with how they're living or what they stand for, but we can still walk in integrity and serve them. And it's not, listen, it's not just about the government or authority in your life either. What about other people in your life? Maybe that you don't like. It's okay. Still got to love them. Still got to serve them. It's actually not about who you like or dislike or who's in authority or not in authority over you. The question is this, who is God putting in your life? Who has God put right in front of you in this season of your life? Daniel literally was put in front of Belshazzar and he served him. God is putting people in your path for you to serve them, love them. Right? This is, this is the attitude we ought to have. This is the heart of Jesus. Remember, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. That's huge, massive. We've got to see ourselves as believers, as contributors and not consumers, right? It's not, I'm just here and everybody come serve me and meet my needs. No, listen, as long as you've got breath in your lungs and some gas in the tank, God is calling you to serve others. Remember, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You're serving other people. You're loving other people is not in vain. It's not arbitrary. It doesn't just mean nothing. People can see Jesus through your acts of service. People can see what you're doing for them and ask, why are you doing this? And then you get to tell them about Jesus. It's totally connected. It's totally relevant. And therein lies the test. If you're a Christian and you look at the, your life and the fruit of your life, and if, that's, if what you see in your life is, wow, I love Jesus, and that appears to be leading me to love and serve other people, great. And we ought to be able to point to specific things that we've done. And it's not about us, but we ought to be able to point to specific things we've done in the last couple days, week, month, year, to serve other people. And if you can't, if you go, well, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to serve anybody. I haven't really done anything for anybody. Yeah, listen, this is not a word of condemnation, but that's a sign there's something off. Keep serving others, just like Daniel did. Number four, I got two more to go and then we'll wrap up. Number four is this. If you are for God, if you're a believer, you will find yourself in the fire. You say, I thought this was an encouragement. You wait, you wait. Daniel was brought in before Belshazzar. I suspect that was likely forced. It wasn't, hey, Daniel, you want to come hang out in the palace? It was, you know, bag over his head and thrown into the back of the van kind of thing, right? He's brought in before the king. Tell me this interpretation. Daniel looks at it and he goes, oh, it's not good for Belshazzar and I've got to now tell Belshazzar the bad thing that's going to happen to him. This isn't easy to do. Daniel's risking, if he tells the truth here, he's risking putting himself in jeopardy and in harm's way. He could give this damning word to Belshazzar and Belshazzar could just get mad and say, take him out back, right? But he speaks out. He doesn't buckle. Now, we've talked about this too. We don't have to go out into the world looking for fire. You don't go out with your sleeves rolled up looking for a fight. But I'm just telling you, there are going to be times in your life where you are trying to walk with Jesus, just stay in your lane, be faithful to him, serve him, follow him. And it's going to put you in the crosshairs of the culture. Because remember, the culture is against God. We're in Babylon. Babylon wants nothing to do with God. Babylon wants to stamp out anything to do with God. 
And if you, as a Christ follower, are living in Babylon, which you are, you're going to hit that intersection one day where you're going to be in the heat, where if, if you can choose either to be faithful or to compromise. And this is what happened to Daniel. And there straight up are some things that we stand for that are unpopular in the world. Did you know that? Like just, you know, one or two. There's many things that we as Christians are for that the world is against, 100%. So we're going to end up in the heat. I'll just remind you of this. Jesus was often in the heat, right? Everywhere he went, there were people who disagreed with him and were angry at him and tried to kill him and hated him. Do we think we're any better off than Jesus was? Like, if it happened to him, it's going to happen to us. It could actually go, I'm not going to lie, this could go like kind of badly for you. If you read throughout the Bible, there are stories, people like the prophet Jeremiah. He's trying to be faithful to God and do what God wants him to do. And different things happened to him. He was put in the stocks, you know, like when you go to the ye olde kind of festival, King's Landing or something, and they've got the wooden thing with the thing for your hands and your head goes through it. He was put in stocks like that. He was thrown into a well at one point. He was in jail. He was left for dead. Jeremiah didn't have everything go well because he was trying to follow God. The culture hated him. Remember the, the, the prophet Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7. He's just trying to be faithful to God and, and stand up for what God once said. And they literally stone him to death. He's in the heat. But here's the important thing. Not only are you going to be in the fire, here's why it's encouraging. Because Jesus is going to be in the fire with you. Right? We've seen that. Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace. In there was Jesus. It's the same thing with us. If, if you are under fire because of your faith, Jesus is going to be with you. And the Bible says he's going to give you the words to say. He's going to supply you with peace. He's going to bless you with his presence. And that means the world. The prayer is not, Lord, just remove me from the fire. Our prayer as Christians ought to be, thank you, Jesus, for being in the fire with me everything. And the last one is this. This is the greatest encouragement I could give you right here. If you're for God, you belong to Jesus, you will, not might, you will come through on the other side. You will. There's this little verse at the end of chapter 5. Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. We're going to talk about him more next week. But here's what you need to know about Darius. He's not from Babylon. He's the king of a different empire. This, if you read your history book, this is where the Babylonian empire ended. And the Persians took over and they were now the superpower. Babylon became virtually nothing. And Daniel survived. Daniel ends up going into the court of Darius the king. We're going to read that in the coming weeks. He belongs to his under his employment. But he literally outlasted Babylon. Again, remember, remember, the superpower Babylon rolls into Israel. Steamrolls everything and everybody. Daniel's taken captive under this superpower. Things are really, really bad. They look awful. How's this going to go for me? He endures beyond Babylon. I'm going somewhere. Remember that we're in Babylon. Babylon is not a nice place to be. The world is a difficult place to be. And it's just saying, probably going to get worse. Uh, scratch the probably, right? Things are not going well out there. But if we stand fast with Jesus, we, like Daniel, we will outlast Babylon as well. 
That may not necessarily happen while you're still alive, but remember, the spirit of Babylon lives on, and, 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 and it's alive and well right now, but there is coming a day where Jesus is going to come back. He is going to put all kings and kingdoms of the earth under his feet in subjection, and you read the book of Revelation, it says over and over again, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. There will come a day where Jesus stamps out this foolishness under his feet and he establishes and cements his ultimate rule and reign. And guess what's going to happen to us if we belong to him? We're going to get to be with him. The Bible says we're actually going to reign with him, which is super cool. So yes, Babylon endures today. Babylon will not endure forever, but if you're a Christian, you will. You will. Is this good news? Because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That means something, right? Jesus sits on a throne that endures forever. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In other words, you're going to be okay. Babylon, like straight up, Babylon might discourage you, but you're going to be okay. Babylon might try to steal from you, but you're going to be okay. Babylon might even kill your body, but you are going to be okay. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his kingship and lordship, this is where our hope comes from. There are better days ahead. Eternity is waiting. You will experience it if you're a Christian. Amen? Amen. Give him some praise for that, okay? The question in closing, it's very simple. Don't answer out loud. The question you need to consider is this. Am I for God or am I against God? If you are not a Christian, you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never turned from your sin, confessed that you're a sinner and need to be saved, repented of your sin, turned around, turned away, and called on the name of the Lord for salvation, you are against God, and something needs to change, and it can change. Jesus is calling you, inviting you. He loves you. He has a life for you. But you have the ball in your court. And if you are a Christian here today, you do belong to God. You are for God. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Because he lives, so also will we live. That is where our hope comes from.